100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge-to-edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no-fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top of the line heavy duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. 
Hey everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt Podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by Michael Perry of Alabama. He currently holds the Alabama state record for his 195-inch mountain buck, has killed over 40 public land bucks, eight points or better, and is the author of Secrets to Taking Mature Bucks on Public Land. We discuss Michael's approach to finding big mountain bucks in rugged terrain, creating hunt plans, using annual data, trail cameras, the story of hunting the state record non-typical buck, and really anything else uh, hunting mountain whitetails. I think that you'll get a lot out of this one as Michael's been doing it for a long time in Alabama on public land and just continues to to get it done. So I, I've been looking forward to this one for a while after I read his book, and uh, I think you will like that too. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday Story of the Week, we have a story coming from Gage Royer out of Pennsylvania. Gage wrote in, I shot this buck the first Tuesday of rifle season on public land in the Pennsylvania mountains. We did a little scouting in bear season and saw a few good bucks, but mostly went in blind. My dad has hunted on this land since high school, but hasn't hunted there for 10 years. I shot him around 10 o'clock in the morning and he ended up grossing 156 and three eighths inches. Well, congratulations gauge because that, that to shoot a 150 in Pennsylvania is is pretty wild. Uh, they're they're out there, that's for sure. But definitely not easy to to be able to do. So congratulations! And if anyone wants to check out this buck, head over to Instagram at East Meets West Hunt or Facebook East Meets West Outdoors. Check out the photo of Gage's giant mountain buck, and I really love the photo that he has there because. So it has his camp in the background, and it's just a perfect Pennsylvania tradition. Uh, looking photo there so thanks for submitting that gauge and if you have a mountain buck story you want to submit send it to my email bow at eastmeetswesthunt.com or you can just go over to the website and the contact us form submit it there and i uh, love being able to go through all these and and be able to share it with all of you in other news so Riding Mountain Waves, uh, the elk hunting film just released on Sunday. So if you haven't checked it out yet, part one is out there on my YouTube channel, which is just Bo Martonic. Head over there, check it out. And part two will come out this upcoming Sunday. I'm really excited about this one because this film is, is a project. I mean, it was a 21-day hunt. <laughs> Longest I've ever spent on a, on a single hunt. And, uh, I, I really shows the highs, the lows, everything that goes with it. Uh, I threw everything out there as you see it is how it happened. There was, uh, no, no hiding anything there. So I think, uh, hopefully there'll be some valuable lessons learned and, uh, get to see some big elk on camera. So check that out. And also, uh, you may notice, uh, with this, this podcast episode and with everything else uh, going forward, I have new branding. So new logo, new logos that are kind of going out. And uh, the original Compass logo that I've had was something that I designed back in 2018 or 2017. I think I might have designed it. I did it myself. I really liked the way it turned out, but it was a little bit complicated and I wanted to, I wanted to keep that, that compass angle of it and keep kind of the mountains in it and 
with the whole understanding of just finding adventure wherever you go and hunting. But uh, I want to simplify it a little bit. So uh, Jordan Riley or Capture Creative did an excellent job with branding, with changing this the, the logo up and changing the whole brand feel. So you'll be able to see that. And um, so I got some new, I'll be having some new apparel coming in here at some point. I did discount some of the other products that that old logo is not going away. It'll, it'll be a legacy piece there. I still really like that, that logo, but um, figured I'd give a little bit of a discount, clear out some inventory to bring in some new hats. So if you want to go check out some of the sale items at eastmeetswesthunt.com slash shop, you can check all of that out. And lastly, uh, I have I have an idea in my head, and I haven't completely worked it out yet. But in the past, you may have remembered when I have done some Mountain Buck Monday podcasts where I would do a short 10 to 15-minute podcast on a specific topic and kind of roll that out. So I'm thinking of doing that again during hunting season, but also a thought came to my mind. I, I listen to some other podcasts outside of the hunting space. And I really like when they do these Q&A podcasts that might be short, you know, 15 to 30 minutes long, sometimes shorter, sometimes a little bit longer. But basically, I get the topics from you guys. So they're, they're question and answer, you know, Q&A type things. You send in some questions and I pick, you know, two or three of them per episode and just answer them, whether it's just me or maybe I have someone with me to, to answer them. But I think, I think I want to do that as an additional podcast during hunting season, at least for now. And it would be an audio only podcast. So it, I've been wanting to do this for a while again, but with now doing the video standpoint, it just takes so much extra time and resources to be able to do the video side of it. I was like, well, why don't I just do the audio version so I could still put the information out there and add some value? But um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. And if you do have questions for it, I think the way I'll take the submissions is you send me an email, bodiesmeetswesthunt.com, and just you know just have it in the in the title Q and A, so I know where it is and I can keep track of all the questions and everything there. Uh, or or leave a comment on one of the YouTube videos if you're uh, you know one of the people that like to you know look at the video podcast or watch the video podcast a little bit more so gonna i I think i'm gonna roll out with that sorry for being kind of all over the place with it um i literally had had thought about it right before i was recording this intro and i was like you know what i just need to hold myself to the fire and do it so uh this is my way of of doing that but with that being said i really hope you enjoy this podcast with michael perry and if you like his book i have a link down below in the show notes uh, to Amazon where you can pick up his book. Really recommend it. A lot of cool stories in there. And uh, yeah, until then, we will see you next week. Okay, I think we are rolling. Michael Perry, yeah, welcome to the podcast. Damn, thanks for having me on. How you doing? I'm good, good. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. I'm trying to get used to glasses. I had to get glasses and then that's kind of hard to get used to, but I'm working on it. So yeah yeah that's um i i I went the opposite way i went away from glasses i had lasik eye surgery done about eight years ago now and uh it was the best best thing i ever did well well, i don't know if lasik can work on that on having that reading glasses you know i have to have reading glasses real bad i'm tired of trying to hunt for them so i want something big right to wear it all the time so 
I went that route, and they said my eyes were pretty good everywhere else. They might have done a little bit of adjustment, but it's still something you got to work through to to get used to it. So, yeah. Uh, does that does that affect your shooting or anything? Like, is that something to get used to? I'm not today when I shot my bow, I didn't even put my glasses on, so I don't. I've not tried anything with the rifle yet, so we're gonna we'll find out. So if I can just, just I don't really worry about that as much because you can adjust that focus, you know, on on the rifle scope and that you know yep. take care of that because. I don't really want to have to worry about the my glasses fogging. <laughs> so I've heard yeah. so many horror stories about that. So if I can if I can get around it without doing that, I'll just keep some readers in my pocket if I need them for something, then hunt without them. So yeah, just keep the keep the small ones and like those little ones. Like my dad carries these ones in his pocket, so when he's looking at his phone or whatever, he can pull them out. And they just sit on his nose, and then doesn't need them for you know shooting or doing anything there. Yeah, or just do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of neat. I shot my bow at thirty yards without it, so I didn't know. I've had a pretty good group, so it's so I might not even worry about using glasses doing that. So, like. Like I say, the biggest part, you know, especially with readers and bow hunting, it makes it tough. I had to change my complete setup last year. I, used to, I, I grew up shooting fingers and, and instinct. So I always, when I went, went back to using sights and the release, I always put the vein in the corner of my mouth. So well, I was having problems when I started needing reading glasses, getting everything kind of lined up through the peat, and, you know, the pen and, and focusing on animal or target. So I, I redone everything last year and got a nose button and just completely changed my style of shooting. And it's helped a lot. So, so that's, that's, I'm glad because I was worried like, man, I might have to get a dang crossbow or something. So <laughs> a bow to me is either to shoot freehanded than a dang crossbow. So. Yeah, no, no. The, the, I mean, the crossbows are heavy as far as trying to pick it up and shoot it freehanded like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they're a lot harder than a gun shoot freehanded to me. So. Yeah. If you're not propped, you know, it could be an issue. So Yeah. No, that makes sense. And and how how long have you been hunting with a bow? I started later in life, you know, when I was young, my dad was real big into it and I just played around shooting. But I when I got out of the Navy, say at, at twenty two, I gun hunted for three or four years. My brother was he was a bow hunting, he would harass me and I finally broke down. So it's so you could say twenty something years, so Okay. But so twenty well, probably I guess probably about thirty years now, maybe so I couldn't tell you exactly, but so. but I enjoy it, you know, is probably I guess more. I like muzzleloader hunting too, but and I, I actually like all of it, but the bow hunt is you know, when you accomplish keeping something with a bow, especially a good buck, because you gotta get tight quarters, there's no there's no better feeling, so so I really love that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny when I was, when I was younger and I first started bow hunting, it was like, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to hunt with anything else. And then as I've come along later, I just realized that I'm an equal opportunity hunter and whatever season allows me to weapon to use. I mean, last year I started using a muzzleloader, which I've never used one of those before, but they had a January muzzleloader season in Ohio. So I was like, figured I would try that out. And I've used flintlock um, I've used flintlock muzzleloaders before in Pennsylvania wow. and, uh, but rifle hunting, archery hunting, it's all, it's all fun to me. It's all just a little bit different and kind of how you approach it. Right. Yeah. On the public land that we hunt, you know, when we gun season starts, they have specific gun days. So you can bow hunt if you want to, but I'm not going to sit out there with a bow and everybody else got a gun. So, <laughs> no. So that's going to try to be fair to me. So. <laughs> And then yeah. deer, and them deer, once the pressure gets on, it, it's hard to get them close, 
you know, with, you know, with, a, with a bow and then they're, they're always aging. So once yeah. they're done, they start. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, it's so, um, before we, we get too far into this, I, so I'd ran into you, I'd met you in person, Mike down in, uh, out, no, no, not in Alabama. That's where you're from. I met you at the NWTF show. Uh, I was working at the Spartan Forge booth and you'd come up and you were looking at some of the maps and, and going through. And I was like, I recognize this guy. And I, you know, and, 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 uh, we started talking and then, then I realized you introduced yourself and I was like, Oh man, I'm, I'm really a, a big fan of, of, I've listened to you on the Southern Outdoorsman podcast before. And I've, you know, seen a bunch of your stuff and your books over the years and I uh, had a lot of respect for you. And you'd given me a copy of your book there to uh to read so i was i was excited and uh to get to get to read your book and and have spent time i have it right here in front of me so secrets to taking mature bucks on public land and when when did that come out was that last year last year yeah okay yeah, it was probably uh august or september or something maybe so okay i tried to get it out before the you know like before summer got too carried carried away but it was but it was tough it there's a lot of work and in, in, in different involvements of other people to get that set up. So it is surprisingly how long, I guess it, was, it might have been kind of fast compared to what a lot of people said, but it seemed like to me it took forever. So. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and, and I was, it was, it was funny when I, when I was reading it and I told you this on the side, one of my favorite things is how it wasn't just a, a tactic book of just going through, you know, specific tactics. There's always stories that led into, and then you talked about the tactics that led into it. And that's, I, I like, you know, from an interviewing style with the podcast, doing those types of things, because I learn I learn better from stories than I would to you just to say, I do this, this, and this, and this is my result. It's easier when you kind of, you know, paint a picture of what something looked like and how it played out to be able to, to find it. And you had said in the beginning of your book that your family's been hunting public land in Alabama for over 50 years and you yourself, and this, this number has probably changed since you've written a book last year, but, uh, 38 public land bucks, eight points or better. And your biggest being the Alabama state record at what, 195 and six eights. 196 and 38. That's another thing about the book. We had some, when Buckmaster scored that, the paperwork was still going through and we had a miss ad on it. So 196 and 38, the book's kind of not exactly right. So, but it, I knew the new book should be right. I had to get that updated, but yeah, it's 196, 38, the most loader state record non typical. So that's oh. pretty, you know, that's a pretty cool accomplishment, you know. So. Yeah, no, that's a, I'd say that's an accomplishment. Um, so how I, I want to hear just to kind of give you give everyone a little bit of a background on you, because, again, this is one part of the book I really liked is kind of your and reminded me of my family in Pennsylvania that you grew up in a family of hunters that were, you know, beating it in these these mountains on public lands in Alabama. So just give a little background on that. Yeah, one of the, the youngest I can remember, I was. We was I was living in a city. We lived in a city called Hartsville, and my dad and them to start out with. They started out duck hunting, then they went to rabbit hunting. They had dogs, and then they started deer hunting a little bit. Well, trapping had some kind of like an explosion. You could make money on it. My dad picked that up, and he was carrying me with him trapping. And I said, "Well, I want some traps." And I was like bicycle age. I was maybe eleven or twelve, and he fixed me up three or four traps, and you know, kind of jokingly and had, had me a 
a stick to take care of whatever I caught and just, just kind of put me off. So I took off on my bicycle, headed out to I got out around some pasture lands and trees and stuff. And I started walking creeks and I found me some raccoon tracks and I started setting traps. Well, the next day, I caught this big old boar coon. The first thing trap I got to, and you're talking about exciting, and the stick my daddy fixed me up. He didn't really fix intended me to take care of something with it. So I had, that raccoon tore that stick up in about 30 seconds. So we went round and round in this creek, both of us soaking wet before one of us finally won. And I had that raccoon on that bicycle going back to grinning, and my dad could not believe that I caught some. So that set the initial fire for me to doing the outdoor stuff. And after that, we started more deer hunting. Then uh, when I turned 17, I I hadn't killed a deer yet, but I'd been you know quite a bit with my dad. But I joined the Navy at 17 and stayed in there five years. And it took me a little while to get back into to hunting. And then saying the I didn't kill my first deer till I was 20 something. I didn't kill my first good buck till I was 31. And then you can read the story about that in the book. That that started changing my mindset about how I wanted to hunt, what I wanted to go after. My brother killed this whopper buck too and that that changed a lot of thought processes so and it, it's more you know the the challenge like in trapping the challenge of making an animal put its foot on a one inch piece of steel and in a hundred acres or a thousand acres or whatever land you're you know trapping on is kind of like you can use that like toward buck concentrating on a buck trying to make a buck or get a buck position close enough for you to shoot it with a bow or whatever weapon you're using is so is so cool of a challenge, and that's that's really what I love doing now. Is is, is more of a you know mature buck, you know, not really a trophy buck, but say a three and a half year old older on public land in Alabama. Just that challenge of finding them and and kind of trying to be strategic and get close enough to them to take them and and get them there at the daylight. So yeah, that's really just set the fire. But it's been a long process, you know. Like I say, I'm 58 years old, and as you know, like I said, 30 something eight points or better, you know, 120-something something deer total. But, but, you know, it's not too bad for what I do. But, you know, now things are starting to change a little bit where, you know, if you can buy – I'm starting to play with it a little bit to go to some other states and kind of broaden that horizon. You know, we're a three-buck state. Uh, so where a lot of states are just one, and I don't, I don't know how many states you go to, but a lot of people are picking out four or five states and trying to – spread out on the rut or and then Alabama we're pretty much just chasing the rut we have a rut scattered from November to all the way to February so you can do that so it's it's a fun I mean it's a fun outdoor event my wife real big you know going with me and she loves it so we we keep it as a family thing and have a camper and go out hit some in public campgrounds and set up and spend the meaning I'll drive to work and work out of the camper you know so and yeah. come back and hunt so so just really enjoy it. Just just trying to have a good family time and enjoy the outdoors. Yeah, and 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 the the thing that you referred to about trapping is is so interesting to me because that was something that my dad and his brothers and my grandfathers were really big into trapping, and then it kind of fell off when you know fur prices took a huge dive, and they don't trap anymore. And and I never really learned it, and I really wish that that I would have, uh, because I mean, my dad says the same thing about like, that's and my grand my grandfather about like how much that's helped with deer hunting and learning right. from, from trapping. Yeah. To actually like if you were a trapping, say a beginner trapper, or whatever, but to really set yourself as an accomplished trapper or a, what you would consider a good trapper, 
is to catch an animal without any kind of scent. You know, you're trying to figure out how his movements are exactly and put that trap exactly where you think he's going to put his foot and catch him. And when you can figure out doing stuff like that, that really helps your woodsmanship about how animals use things, whether, you know, coyotes is one of the hardest things they are to catch. And we didn't even have coyotes for a long time. They started, you know, populating pretty good here. And we started, I love doing land trapping, trying to catch coyotes because they were more of a challenge. And figuring out how that really helps, you know, about how, you know, dirt animals are, are more of a elusive animal. Because a dang coyote can smell and figure stuff out, and they're generally running more, more than one in a group, and they can they can figure out stuff pretty quick, and it makes them hard to catch more than one out of a pack. So, but that I mean, it's just an extreme challenge, and I just love doing that. Yeah, and and um, so, so when when you started, you know, trapping and then getting in the deer hunting. Did you did you start out by hunting some of the like the the rugged big woods type areas in Alabama? Is that where you kind of cut your teeth, or is that what you kind of came to later in life? We spread out like my dad and them real like you talking about that muzzleloader hunt. They the, to kill a deer that was the easiest thing to do was to carry a muzzleloader, and they followed the muzzleloader hunts, and that was either sex. And most of the other most of your gun hunts was buck only, so. So they, every time they, you know, they all worked at plants and all his buddies worked at chemical plants and stuff. So they was off, you know, every other weekend or something. So whenever they went to them weekend hunts on their mammoth areas, if they could find one that was a plant lock hunt or a muzzleloader hunt, that's where we were going. So we're just actually just deer hunting. So, and the rugged part, the, the mountainous area, we actually got two or three places like it. That's wherever they went, that's where I was going from. So I went and learned from swamps to hills to cut over stuff and, you know, the hilly stuff. The, but the more mountainous big woods area is what I concentrate on now earlier because it's the least, it's the least populated area that's got, you know, the least amount of deer in the state and it's harder, but it's got the bigger bucks to me, the best, best chance of a bigger buck. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, uh, I would say that, you know, that pretty well with having the, the non-typical state record buck that, you know, came out of one of those types of areas and, and, and I had heard you say that, um, or read it, uh, multiple times in, in the book, as far as like, you look for some of the, the most rugged, just kind of baddest places to find some of these deer. Do you find a correlation in that? I think, you know, to get, and you know, we're a big buck, especially in this area that we hunt, he finds the roughest place, more like a mountain goat would, you know, just something that he's got the whole, t- uh, a visual advantage and, and got a couple of ways to escape without anybody even seeing him. So the roughest, nastiest place I can find, it don't have to be real far from the road, but it's just what I'm kind of keying on. You know, I always start out, you know, everybody I talk to, and they say, how you start out? So I always start out looking for tracks, you know, walking drainages, you know, rough stuff, especially after rains, you know, and especially right after season when you can, you know, the leaves are done wore down good and you can find tracks easier and just, and then look at your maps or stuff on trying to figure out what he's doing or backtracking. So, and, and, you know, the next year, like a lot of times they'll be in the upper thirds of some hills, but just that, but that depends on what kind of, you know, food or forage you got or browse, you know, it, and that, that depends on how rough the winter was or if you had a drought before, before the frost that might make them move lower. So you just got to build it just. And, but um, next year, bouldery uh, just blow down crazy stuff that you can't hardly get through without you know making a bunch of noise they love getting in that and getting on a visual spot where they can see somebody coming 
Yeah. And, and I like, I like what you said there, as far as it sounds like you just, you, when you find an area you want to go into, you walk the drainages, you walk the bottoms and check the creek crossings as far as for, mm-hmm. for big tracks. And that's kind of gives you a starting point. Right. Even, even the drainage, you just walk them all the way up, you know, as high as you can go. Because a lot of times they'll stay higher, you know, crossing. So it might be a unique spot. I mean, you're just looking for one big track. Then once you find that track, wherever it's at, you know, look at the terrain around you and, and try to figure out why that track was there. You know, ask about three or four questions. Well, why is it, why is that track pointed this way? You know, why is it, you know, up high or why is it up low? Why is it by a cutover? Why is it by a pine thicket or, you know, whatever? So ask a bunch of questions and start, and then think if you're the deer, why would you be doing that? And especially at that time of year. So. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you find the bench buck, which is what you called your 196 and three eighths inch, uh, deer? How did you find him originally? I've, well, I, you know, postseason scouting every year, as soon as the season's over with, as soon as I got days off, me and my wife or me and buddies, whatever, we'll take off and walk like the areas I've already know about and then walk some new areas. I'll take off, start walking and I'll take trail cameras with me and put them out and, where I find a big track, like in a pinch or an edge, you know, and most of the time I'm looking for a place that I, that I can hunt, you know, because I really, you know, I'm getting a, getting data is one thing, but getting data on a place where you can actually get there and hunt, making sure I got access and put a camera up and I won't check it for the next year and, and see what comes through. Well, I had a camera picture of him in daylight and probably he's about four and a half years old in November and I had a couple of them in, February and he looked pretty rough. He, he had all the stickers and stuff. He was real skinny and was still carrying his antlers. And uh, boy, I thought, man, he, he'd be a nice one if he lives. And I showed a picture to the biologist. And uh, so I kind of set up for him next year, hoping he'd be alive. And, and uh, I'd missed him by one day. He'd come by the day after I hunted, following three does at nine o'clock in the morning. And he, but he was his body would got built back good, but he, he probably may have been a hundred sixteenth deer. Which I would if I'd have seen him. Don't I would have put tried to kill him anyway, but. But he didn't have all the stickers. He had one or two splits. But the next year, which I didn't know about it, you know, I didn't know I had any pictures of him until after I killed him. But I still waited till that time that I had him in daylight. The camera proved or showed me that he wasn't daylight until the first week of November. So the first day I was off was November 5th on the last day of the muzzleloader hunt. I went down there and about 930 Have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others available at all times? Well, you can with CyberScout from Spartan Forge. CyberScout is like the chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. CyberScout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%, and if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S., and I've been using the Acura series, but they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. 
Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade Short Barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. A uh, six or seven point that's pretty good size buck. Most people with a muzzleloader would have shot him. He'd come by bow range 20 yards and just slip around eating wild oats and up on this the bench was above a creek crossing in between a bluff gap that goes to a to a blowdown bedding area. And uh, that's and one thing like I do that I kind of left out is I try to put multiple things together from a big picture of why they're crossing there, you know. And that, just like I said, he was, he was coming across a creek crossing using this bench that was thick, going to a bluff gap, going to a a point that had a bunch of blowdowns, just nasty stuff that's kind of kind of hidden. Well, anybody got that six or seven point come easing by, and then about 15 minutes later, I had something catch the corner of my eye, and I could just see his huge side right when it stepped behind some uh, big old, uh, like, Calcutta bushes or this big old leafy bush tree, and just all I could see was the rear end. And, you know, he stood back there forever, and I got positioned, and, it took him, it seemed like five minutes, but it probably wasn't 30 seconds for him to ease out. And I shot, had to cross there behind his shoulder and squeeze. And I could see him mule kick and took off. And if I don't see him die or hear him die, I'll wait an hour. So it took him a little while. I was getting nervous. But anyway, I had, I gathered my stuff up because I had to use, I had to pee a little bit or something and then um, end up knocking the main bottle off, making a bunch of racket about 30 minutes after I'd shot. And, well, if I already made enough noise, I just left you down there and see if I found blood. Anyway, I snuck down, couldn't find blood where I thought I shot at. I was off about 30 yards and started doing a little bit of grid stuff. And then I found it and tracked it to, you know, good blood. I tracked it where he run into a tree and he knocked bark off of that gum wild oak tree. Just, <laughs> you can see tine marks in the tree. I was like, golly. Then about 30 yards past that, I could see a deer laying, turned back facing me. And I could see that side that had all them that hand sticker on it and then tears started coming down because I could, you could just tell he was a huge deer laying there and it's just, you know, getting up there looking at him and knew that it was the one I'd had on camera. And, you know, I've had been running cameras off and on for, you know, back when they had film cameras, you know, so, and that's the biggest deer I've ever killed I had on camera. It's only like the third or fourth deer that I've killed that I've ever had on camera. Most of the time I've killed a different deer. So, but I was so, you know, to accomplish that. And kind of another thing was, I wanted to kill him with a muzzleloader because I'd already killed a record button one with a bow and a record button one with a rifle in the same piece of public land. And I thought, I don't know of anybody else that had ever would have killed three different weapons within the record button. And I told everybody, I'm going to try to kill him that muzzleloader. And I, and I told that muzzleloader the whole season anyway, even, even after I killed him and I killed another a 10 point. But I just, that's what I wanted to do. And, and it worked out just perfect on the first time that I went down there and I couldn't believe that. And that just, you know, all the years of trying to get a big buck because we just didn't have them for a long time. Everybody's killing, you know, I've killed a bunch of spikes and other deer in, in my career. So I'm just trying to learn to hunt. So, but whenever that, all that coming into play, I just couldn't believe it. Just, just tore up and just amazed that a deer could get that big 
live that long on public land that's, you know, pretty, pretty heavily pressured was is just amazing. And I was able to, you know, put it together in daylight because I've, I've had them on camera. We had one we had on camera that we knew was seven and a half years old and we'd never seen the sucker ever. And we would get daylight pictures of him every year. And he'd always knew us better than we knew him, I guess, because we'd never seen him and he just disappeared, died, I guess. But it's just so hard to get a deer past four and a half years old in daylight on public land, especially down here. I mean, it's, it's nearly impossible. It just, they just learn so much. They learn by smell, sight, and hear so much stuff in that four or five years that it, they just they just know you better than, than them most of the time. They, they, they stay nocturnal. They'll, I'm sure they get out there and they, they lay there and say, all right, everybody, it's not time I can go around and see who all is coming to my area, know where they're coming from then stage myself where I can wait on them when the season gets here and then just make, you know, just play with them, have fun with them, just make them think they're going to get me, but they ain't because I know them better, you know, than they know me. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, to do that, you know, it just makes you feel good because it's, it's tough. You know, the South is to me is a little bit harder than the North because we don't, our deer, especially our mature bucks, once they get their bodies up, they don't have to eat. You know, in the day, like, like a northern deer, they don't get that cold. So they, once they get their bodies up, they just lay up at night, you know, or till night, and then they can gather up, graze a little bit, and swallow a bunch of acorns whole, and then go bed up and bring them up, regurgitate them all day and eat. So we're up north, you know, when it gets cold, they got to maintain their body heat and stuff, so they got to eat a bit more than ours do. So it's just so hard to make them get up in daylight. You know, a doe might bring them, or somebody might kick one up, they, and it's tough. Yeah. And, and so that was, did when you shot that buck, was that during the rut? No, it was a pre-rut pretty much. It was November 5th. Most time they've had early conceptions date like November 13th in this area. But, but most of the time the extreme action is to be like the, around Thanksgiving to the first week of December. And, and I kind of think that is like the initial rut is more like a lull. You know, they get with the, the initial does. You don't hardly see much unless you're right there where they at. But it was it was pretty much pre rut. Okay, yeah, because I wasn't sure as far as like, uh, you know, it, I know how Alabama has so many different ruts. So I knew you said November, but I wasn't sure if that was the was the rut or not. But no, that that did you have did you have pictures of them that year that yeah, you I killed had, them? Okay. Yeah, well, well I, I had a camera right there. And that general area where I shot him at, and I had another camera like a quarter mile away. And that camera was the only daylight picture of him I had of him. It was in September. I had a couple more nighttime pictures of him. And uh, he actually come by that camera that day, but he was uh, but he was below it. That six or seven point, I got him on camera. I had a picture of him when he come by, but that big buck stayed below about another 20 yards down. So he was about 40, 45 yards away when I shot him. So, But he just stayed out of that's, that's another thing about them. They, they, they don't hardly ever travel the same exact point of a trail. They'd be up or down. You know, they, they just, they're, they're sharp about where they do things. Yeah. No, it's so, it's so tough when you're hunting those types of areas because the bucks aren't on any sort of pattern or doing, you know, if I find like where I think a buck's betting, it's like he might be betting there 5% of the time. It's not, yeah. it's not like he's just laying in this one bed every single day. Yeah, I don't like ours on that. You know, they have food plots and stuff they plant. And I know people had, I know people that hunted the area, and they, nobody ever told, showed me a picture of it. I don't know if anybody ever had any pictures of them. I, I killed a big one with a bow a couple of years before that. I got all kind of pictures sent to me of him from like four miles away. This cat, I think he didn't go. You know, they don't have to go to the food plot. They just there's enough browse 
and they can pick up enough acorns. And when the acorn years is good, they can they can just want to be nomadic and just eat, browse around, find a good place to bed, and stay there till dark again. Move up, you know. They got six different bedding areas or whatever. So it's just at times you would think it'll be kind of easier because they're more nomadic, but they ain't. They just they just go you know, just bed up at night anyway. It don't matter where they at. So. Yeah, so bed up until night. So. Yeah. Did you did you know when you shot him? Did you know that that was him? Not when I shot him then, but when I got to him, I did. But oh yeah, yeah. I meant like when you when you saw him come out behind that bush. Did you? you didn't I just know knew it was, it was big. But, you know, once I seen that big side, I didn't even look look at his head when he come out behind that yep. bush. Yeah, you know, so I might I might have screwed up by seeing that big one. You know that that many points and stuff. Because he was huge. That just seeing him laying on the ground because he weighed two hundred twenty five pounds. That's the biggest one I've killed, and he was still he hadn't lost any weight. I don't think he was just still huge, big neck, just big body and it's like you just can't like how in the world something like that just live like that when you just walk around just it was, it was amazing it just tore, it tore me up so that's that was one of the most impressive things i mean you can see it on the cover of the book but how big the body of that deer was too like his neck his head looked small because his neck was so big just broad shoulders just a huge <laughs> deer yeah he wasn't a real long body but he was just a tank you know just a muscled up tank just ready for whatever so, and and uh, it was pretty cool was on the bases of his antlers he got them the little buttons on there they're they're chipped up or what he barring something that was chipping them horns up down there at the base so i don't know what he was sparring with but i don't know i don't i don't wouldn't even see any other bucks in him walk up and didn't think about sparring with him but yeah something was. <laughs> yeah that's it, you know that's it's funny to me because you know they can't see what's on their head but i feel like if you were to look at somebody a, another buck and he's got a set of antlers like that you should probably know that there's that that's pretty dang big and you should walk away <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah that's true yeah. Uh, and so when you were hunting him, uh, do when you, or really when you're hunting any, any of, um, these bucks, do you, do you tend to move around a lot or stay in the, stay in like the same area kind of in a, in a travel path waiting for them to come through because they are so nomadic? Well, uh, like early season, we'll have about a month that we can do like early season hunting. I kind of stay out of my main areas that I'm using that camera data for, I'll try to find an isolated buck somewhere on like a feed tree and do that early season. But after that, from what camera data that I have from the year before, I'll have four or five places during that rut time frame that I can go to where, the, where there's been two or three or more bigger bucks travel that edge or that pinch point, and I'll sneak to that. Sometimes I look at the wind. If, if I, just, I don't want the wind to go where I think they're coming from or where they're going, but I don't care if it's going across where they're coming from. So. I kind of look at that a little bit and just make sure I can get there. And I, I was being, if it's a, if I feel confident in that area that I can get there without, but I always try to make sure my access is where I don't cross any kind of trails if I can help it. And then, and if I do, it's just very limited and where I can see the trail, you know, when I'm up in the tree. So, and if I, if I feel that confident in the area, I'll hunt it four days in a row. You know, if I don't have any kind of action, because cameras kind of tell me over the years that it might take, as nomadic as they are, and they're checking on doe groups, that's another kind of key. Our does, when they have their babies, they spread out. They don't they don't have babies together. They kind of spread out, and they still carry them babies up into the rut. They're still kind of like an individual group. Them bucks are traveling around finding, trying to find a doe in heat. So just using that, keeping that mindset, it might take them 
three or four or five days to come through to go check for that doe group. You know, the reason that they were there the year before or or whatever it is, how your process or thought process on why they're crossing through there. So, so I'll give them some time. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm a real patient person on that stuff. And I've learned over the years that if you feel confident in that spot, trust your gut and don't, don't try to overthink yourself because you'll walk yourself out of a deer maybe. So, yeah, no, I've, I've talked about it on here a bunch of times, but I, there was a, there was a phase when I was younger where I would just sit in the same tree for like seven days straight during the rut. If I had a week off, that's what I was doing in the same tree. And I always killed a buck. Well, then I started taking in too much media and I was bouncing around and thinking I had a, you know, first spot is the best and sitting in places and I'd go move around and I was just chasing my own tail. Cause in, in the, in the mountains, it's like these deer aren't going down the same places. And a lot of times, you know, if you pay attention to your access, like you're talking about, you're not really boogering things up as bad as an area that has, you know, a ton of deer that are, that are in that, in that specific place. And those bucks are just, especially during the rut are they're, they're moving and, and checking does. I mean, I remember this one deer I was hunting. I missed him one morning in 2015. He was one of the biggest deer that I'd ever hunted. And that day I had him on camera that morning, like two and a half miles away on a different camera. And then he hit another camera. And this was like the only time he was hitting cameras in daylight was that day, but he made a big stretch all in in one day before he came in front of me later that morning. And it was just, it was just wild to me to see how much, you know, country they'll cover. Yeah. I think, you know, we have like like some big power lines and and cutovers and, you know, things like that. If they if they're out looking for a doe, they they run a power line or or a, they even run down the side of a, a road or something because they know deer cross roads or does cross roads. They're walking down a power line or the side of a road for miles just trying to cut a doe in heat scent. So they we had a guy that killed a, a huge eight point, and they're pretty sure from the what cameras that this deer had was caught eight miles away like five days before that. You know. Wow. So, I mean, so he never when that when they're after a doe, and, they, and you know, a doe might carry them that far. Who knows? But they just you don't know how far they'll go. You know, I know I've had one I killed. It was three or four miles away. The guy on camera. So, and then most of the time you'll have you know, flight you know, bucks on my trail cameras that only have one picture of. They just come through at one time, one certain time frame, just checking for a doe, and you don't you don't see them again. You know, they might have come by and not by the camera, but you won't see them again until the next season because. They're only they're they're out of their home area because you know that's another thing you kind of got to think about is, is hill country and mountain country. You know, when you're doing your postseason counting stuff, they're already back as a bachelor group. So you know, your your three and a half year olds and two and a half, they might be groups of five to six something. But your monster buck, to me, he's a, a lot of times he bite by himself. But like that one I killed, he had another buck at seven point with him. And what cameras I had of him during, the, or pictures I had of him during the summer and, and spring, they were always together. Hmm. So, and that and during the spring and the summer, that big buck was leading that six or seven point. And then when hunting come around, he was letting that seven point lead. So it was kind of <laughs> funny, but so you got to kind of think about that. So whenever they bust up in the fall, you know they're going to spread out and get away from each other because they don't tolerate each other living there close. But whenever they look for those, they'll intersect and you know run across each other. Or get in the same area, so so when you're thinking about that process, or what I'm trying to think of is all right, you know, you're looking at a big picture. You got food plots, you know, parking areas, mountains, hills, things everywhere. 
where can you get or this is what I'm thinking of when I'm putting trail cameras out. Where can you get or where is this deer going to cross going to to get to them three points or them two or three food plots two miles away, whatever are these, and try to pick places out that I can get to and put cameras out and then see how, why, and when or trying to figure out, you know, a time frame of when they're crossing through there in the daylight and then and make sure I can get there and and, and access it and hunt it and I'll during the during the rut, I'll spend three or four days. You know, early season, you know, I'd rather run and gun because it's a lot busted. I'll sell, you know, bust them out in the morning because a lot of times in the morning, they're so close to where you're trying to hunt at because they don't, you know, when the acorns start falling, there's still so much browse and stuff, they bed pretty close to where the acorns is at. So morning hunt, early season, is tough because a lot of times you can go in there before daylight, they're there, you know, somewhere close and they see you, you know, or sneak out so it, it's a little bit easier in the evening but still harder but than than in the rut to me but so it's it's kind of tough you know early season because we got so much browse like I say when acorns falling they're just bedding right there pretty close to them and that that makes it tough early season so the rut to me finding the right place you can spend three or four days and then 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 then, then move on but early season that running gun style I like it I like finding three or four food tree feed tree with big droppings or maybe some rubs close to it or, or some scrapes that's fresh. And then you've only, like here, we've only got a couple of weeks to do that. When they start putting them scrapes out, it, things are changing, you know, quick. So. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you hunting, when you say the feed trees, are you hunting right over the feed trees or are you just like, how, how are you thinking about those? I'm trying to get between where I'm thinking they're bedding at. So. But like on the same, in the mornings, I try to get on the same level. Is where I think they're bed, you know, be on the side of the ridge or on top of the ridge, like, or maybe a shelf. But in, but in the evenings, I generally try to get up tight to where I, where I feel like I've, where I have actually seen tracks most of the time. I don't hunt a place in the evening where I've actually seen a track coming down off the side of a mountain or the hill going across, and then I'll, I'll set up close to that track. So give out a couple of hunts, and I'll move on to the next one, just just trying to catch one come off from where I think they're bed next, though. Yeah. No, that, 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 that definitely makes sense. And, and how much, or I guess one more question on the, the feed trees. So when you're talking about a ridge that has a bunch of oaks on it and everything, how are you distinguishing? Like, this is the feed tree that you want to hunt. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm probably misspoke. Most of the time it's not going to be a ridge. that has got a bunch of oaks on it. It's going to be like isolated oaks off the uh-huh. coast of pine thicket or some kind of cut over edge or something thick nasty is isolated trees not really groups of trees ah so. uh, that that okay that that makes sense so something so it's kind of a um a lone tree or a lone group of trees um amongst other vegetation that's there versus right. just finding a you know a big oak ridge and trying to figure out what's the best tree right yeah you can kind of see that on these new you know I've, i'm still not as familiar with a lot of folks on them i'm looking at maps and and, and visual you know, uh, satellite imagery, but you can find a lot of them places, you know, like it, if you look close enough, you know, looking for, with the winter, wintertime imagery, you know, finding pines and stuff, and then finding, you know, the bare trees, like oak trees, and then look at them, you know, post-season, just trying to find out where the white oaks, and sometimes I feel like the red oaks is more, I don't know, I think bucks like them more sometimes, but I don't know if it's because they either like them or they know that the other deer don't like them and they, they don't have no more competition for it or something. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, a interesting thought process. And you'd mentioned a couple times about, 
using that historical data, whether it's cameras or you're hunting as far as, you know, planning for that upcoming season, how much, how much do you weigh that historical data versus the, you know, kind of real time data that you find versus like tracks and stuff along those lines? To me, it's real important, you know, this place, because of the, our deer population is less, you know, less density, I'll, I'll kind of spread out more and I look and I have a bigger areas and I try always finding some newer areas. But when I move on to this other place down, down south around a swamp area, I got the same trees. They don't matter. I just go down there and get that thing tree. If I don't feel like it's being an active area for some reason, I might move. But generally, most of the time, I can go to that same tree then within three or four days and have a four-year-old or something come by and get hmm. opportunities and see plenty of those. It's just a, I just learned over time from this swamp area, this in between, you know, some, some food plots and some old cutover. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at themobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. That's, that leads up to some points that were fine points. It's got sage grass, them does like bedding on when it's cooler. And uh, them bucks will cut the edge of that swamp. You want to check them sage pockets out. And just if you're patient, you know, you don't want to come by if you play, if you, you don't get in there right without spooking them. And patient, you don't have one come by. So I don't know. I kill a, a four and a half year old six point this year that down there and like on the third day or something and uh I've, but just about every year every other year i'll kill a button out of that tree so <laughs> i've caught and i've i've killed uh 40 out of that tree going in and a bunch of you know 100 inch you know 140 is pretty rare down there but a bunch of other like 100 110 inch, you know good bucks for there so yeah no that makes sense and so how do you how do you keep track of all that as far as like well, that tree, obviously, you know where you're going into, but you go to an area and you have historical data there. Oh, right there. There it is, the journal. <laughs> all that right there, all the data. <laughs> <laughs> I keep, I've got data all the way back to 1988. Do you really? You yeah, I can. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, so I used to write all that down on calendars. I get calendars from the bank. And I'd write down all these hunts. I'd write down everything I see on there. And then about 10 years ago, I transferred all of it to this book. And I started keeping up with it in this book. So write down what I see, the dates, you know, and if the weather's kind of odd, write that down. Then definitely write down the kills and what time, you know, if it's if it's raining or whatever. But keep up. I keep up all that stuff. And, and my trail camera data on, on my computer, I keep everything that I, that I call a shooter buck on there or a potential shooter on there, and I go back, look, let me look at them dates, the times, and just keep up with all that stuff, kind of correlate it. You know, some they were, like this past year, we had a crazy year. We didn't have any acres. I'm talking about very minimum. I, we didn't even have a dead gum uh, 
uh, hickory nut. Man, I mean, hickory nuts and then squirrels worked themselves deaf. Don't pine cones stuff last year. It was it was awful, and uh, and it was a it was a lesson for a lot of folks, you know, even me, because I would have thought they would have moved more trying to find food, but they didn't. They found something they could browse on, and they stayed there, and they and it was thick, and they just didn't come out unless it was kicked out. So, so keeping up that stuff over the years, anything like that that just could mean anything, because you'll forget about it, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, yeah. hunt season, you'll have so much going on during hunt season, if you don't write it down, you'll, you'll forget about it, you know, so I keep all of it wrote down and heard the information, and then and when I'm sitting there not doing anything, I'll look back through it, especially when we go camping, I'll have that book in there, and I'll be flashing back, looking at it for 10 years or whatever, trying to keep up what was going on, what time of the year, because generally, you have everybody that talks about the moon and you know weather and all that stuff, and that I, I can understand part of that, but that rut is generally a certain time frame. It might be more active at night, or it might be more active certain moons, but it's going to be during that time frame. You know, you, you just might not be in the exact area you need to be in. So, so kind of think of that. So that's what I go by is dates. Them dates mean more to me than any kind of moon weather. You know, the weather, if you, if you like hunting fronts, you know, that's fine. But in correlating it with them dates, and them dates are still going to be there regardless of what kind of weather or what. They're not going to wait for the best weather to rut so it, because the sunlight, basically the amount of sunlight hours, I understand is what tells them to rut, and that's what they're doing. So if it's 100 degrees, they might do it at night, or if it's 20 degrees, they might be more active in the daylight. But you still... You know, you still got to put your time in there. If you're not putting your time in, you're, you know, that's you're just taking away from your chances to make it. Yeah, no, that no, you, I I would agree with that. And it's funny. So my uh, my dad has all these notebooks. He's been writing down every every hunt that he's had and having the same thing that that you've done forever. And he's the one that taught me to do that. And then I, I moved it. I went a little more digital. So on in Spartan Forge, there's a, there's a journaling feature in there and you can do it and associate it with a waypoint, but it has all of your journal entries. And then it also takes the weather for that day and adds it in there. So really? when you, when you go back, you can, you can look at all that stuff and be able to see it. So that's a, that's um that's what I've been using now because I'll just as things happen I'm in the tree I just kind of write and add things to it and just have all of it right there and then I can go back and refer to it and look at it but it's um yeah it's pretty it's pretty nice to be able to do that because I, I I don't know I I don't I like to think I can remember things but the little details and the specifics not so much at all I mean I can't tell you how many times I look back at those notes and I'm like Oh, I forgot that happened. And it was this date. And, you know, especially when you get to, you know, you get to the rut and you're not doing very good and your mind jumbled and you're starting to second guess everything. It's nice to have real data to look back and be like, okay, I got to trust this and, you know, you know, maybe try this again in, right. um, in these specific spots because we see annual data being so helpful here in Pennsylvania as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, some years you like it, it don't show up exactly, but it's, and the only reason that is is because it might have happened a hundred yards over here and you just can't see it. You know, it's just you're not exactly in the right place. So, so just keep them dates in mind. I even had a, well, I think when I was at Buckmaster Show last year, I had that big deer down there, and somebody come by had a some kind of app or program. He said, uh, "Do you know what day? You remember what day you killed that deer? What time? All that?" I said, "Yeah." As a matter of fact, I had this book with me. I carry it with me. People ask questions, so. And I showed him, he said, well, I'm going to look at my program, and I guarantee his program is going to tell me 
that match up that date, and then I'll I'll pay you to advertise for it. And I said, all right, let's do it. So, no, he wasn't there. He just, really? <laughs> so, a couple more minutes. But I already had another guy that was real big on the moon stuff and the, the overfoot, overhead, underfoot, and all that. And he went through that book, all the kills that I had, and not one of them correlated with any of them. So, really? Yeah. And, 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 and it could, but what I, the biggest thing is about special pumpland is a lot, there's so many other variables that could put there by, you know, so you don't, you don't worry about one variable. There's about four or five other things that could happen. So I don't want to, and I try to stress this to a lot of folks, don't try to get tunnel vision on certain processors or certain ways you want to hunt, because there's a lot of other variables, a lot of other things that could happen to put that deer by you. So, so the, the main variable is you. You know, you got to put yourself there in the daylight, you know, and then the other stuff you can't really control. You know, you control how you get there, access, and how you know your equipment and uh, and what you can do and trust yourself and trust your judgment. Then don't worry about any of the other stuff because don't worry about the moon or, or whatever. Just put yourself in that position and, and, you know, and be patient. Then that the rest of it you can't really control. So. Yeah, and, and you – um. And I believe you do this similar to how, what, what I do too, is like, I, I don't know if you call it the same, I can't remember from the book, but I, I build out something every year that I call a hunt plan. So I have three to five main areas that are usually like either di- different pieces of public land or different large chunks of an area. And then I have three to five spots within those and I have them listed out and then I'll have any details of like what wind direction makes sense for this or time of year, anything. So I have that plan and I'll print it out and I have it. So then when I get to a point where I'm like, all right, I'm frustrated or I'm not, you know, doing as good and I need, or there's too much hunting pressure, whatever I need to move to another spot. It's like a, it's a strategic thing. I can look at this and be like, okay, I know I, I I should go try this spot out or I should try this place. And it just, it, for me personally, it takes off the anxiety of, of trying to figure things out on the fly. Right. If you spend more time concentrating, learning, learning, so like you said, an area, a mile and a half, two miles, or whatever it is, five-mile area, a big block that you know has got the deer you want to take or what kind of deer you want to take or the or the availability there you want to take, learn that all you can. Then put them times together or the weeks together and have different places that you can get into, you know, without tracking it up or without crossing trails. And you can move like that. You know, you can spend four or five days in a place you, that's up a previous producer or whatever, but you also got three more places at that same time frame. You can sneak in there too. You just, you're just saving them. Don't, you know, if you can go to three different places in that week, then you don't burn all your places pretty much. So, yeah. So just be strategic, just like you said about that and, and patient. And that, that, that works out, you know, good to me is the biggest thing is learning your area, you know, and sometimes when you have a, you check out a place for two or three days and it ain't, just driving up you can always just sneak in there and and then see and, and hunt your way in then hunt there you know if it ain't there you know you just we just wasted one day so i mean you got other days but just be more strategic about it and, and have your plan just like you say and, and i always tell myself stick with that plan because your plan you know it's been it's worked for you from you know as successful as i've been or whatever it's always sooner or later worked out for me and stick with it no matter how bad it it, it seems it is so yeah oh no that 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 makes sense and 
Do you um and and you hunt with you hunt with like a group of people, not technic I mean, I'm not saying like you're hunting with them in the tree or anything, but you have like a, a group, including your wife and others that that you kind of help each other out and and right. do that kind of stuff too, don't you? Yeah, we got a network of people that's hunting the same area. You know, they might be five miles away, or whatever. But we're all kind of sharing information about what we're seeing and and how we think the movement is. And if somebody kills one, we'll get contact. We help. You know. So you just and you need that, really. It's you know you try to be a little bit private about some things, but you really need a good group or network of people that you can trust and do that and build that relation with to um, to get through them things. So and that helps a lot. So yeah, we got say five or six people. So yeah, I think there's a picture in that book with four or five that helped get that deer out. So yeah, that kind of a group really means a lot and helps a lot. So. My wife is the main, you know, she's my main partner. You know, over the years, I before she got to hunting a whole lot, when my son was in school and she was taking care of him, I went through two or three people, but, but they just didn't have the patience or didn't uh, want to deal with the ruggedness and of how you, how I, my thought process was because most of the time, I'm not seeing that many deer, you know. Um, uh, and the way I do it is if you're seeing too many young bucks, whatever, you're kind of probably in the wrong spot. So, and when you do see one, or you know, it could be a big one. So, so I went through several, you know, hunter partners, whatever, just just or they had other things going on, whatever. And then when my wife started hunting, and my son's out of the house now, so she's my main partner. You know, she sticks with me. You know, scouting and everything. Well, bad weather, cold weather. You know, we can't. We got to carry. We carry a camper and do that. So we used to tent camp all the time. Now we just, you know, camper is a lot easier. So we got a few. Uh, adopted dogs that we got that we carry with us so we have a good time just making a family thing and we'll have people come out of camp we'll talk and share stories and you know look at deer people probably come by and bring deer in the back of their truck whatever and look at them so it's it's a fun thing that's one of the coolest thing about this the the outdoor relationship you have with all these people the stories and then the camaraderie that you have with all these you know, your buddies and friends so yeah, no, I I like that, and it's kind of like a a mobile deer camp, you know, where like we have we have a a deer camp that's stationary, where everyone you know, during hunting season there's always someone there at, at night, and everyone's coming up, and whenever someone gets a a vehicle or a, gets a buck, everyone's texting everyone, and all of a sudden vehicles are coming in and out of the driveway, coming up and checking them out, and standing there and telling stories, and and yeah. you know it, it's it's a little different. Mine's all my family as far as uh, my my network i'll call it but as far as anybody shoots something it's like you know the text goes out and it's like all right when do you want to go in and start looking and then you know every you know people come in and and do that we all hunt different areas essentially but like we all we all have our own spots but we all go help each other out when it's it's needed and i i love i love being able to do that yeah that's amazing like we're just camped on like a primitive hunt camp we carry a generator with us and but we've we've got you know a pretty good popularity or following now that if somebody kills something that and they they pretty much know we're camping there and anywhere on that ninety something thousand acres they kill one they're coming by to show it to us or talk to us and and we enjoy every bit of that that's, that's part of the oh that's great yeah yeah that's 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 really fun to be able to to be able to have that and have everyone come by and see them and and it's uh I don't know that's just that's that's really cool and I I just find so many similarities now that i've the you're so you're the third person 
in a row here that I've interviewed this from the South and I hadn't interviewed a bunch of people from the South in the past until I realized it's like, there's so many similarities with hunting traditions and hunting styles and the terrain. And yeah, there's, you know, the, the differences that come in there too. But at the same time, it's like, there's so much, so much of those, those similarities. I, uh, I, I was talking to Jacob and Andrew and I was like, I, they, well, they told me like, you should come down and hunt with us sometime and, you know, camp out and just, you know, go hunt for a week or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I'd, uh, I would, I'd love to do that. That'd be fun. Yeah. I'm on it. That'd be fun. I'm telling you. Yeah. yeah. I think you just talked Shane Parker not too long ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I met him. I finally met him in person at the mobile hunter expo and talked to him a little bit. He hunts a similar style, but like, but like a different mountain range. And so it, that's all that's neat. So it's pretty cool how you hunt, you know, got similar tactics and, all that and then when you talk to somebody else and they're doing kind of the same thing and you get to share you know strategies and stories and it's real neat so. yeah no and i i love you know hearing it. it's it's crazy to me like one question i had earlier was you know you were talking about how alabama didn't really have many big bucks a while back what what changed do you think like with with that because you still can shoot a lot of deer in the state where you know pennsylvania i i really believe that it's both the antler restrictions that they put on and we don't, we're only a one buck state. And then also the forest management, there's a lot more timber cuts they're creating better habitat. And then the deer density is lower. So they have better food and everything than it used to be. But I'm curious to hear what you think about in Alabama. Yeah, we got a bunch of deer, you know, the biggest thing has helped is, is, to me is, is a lot of the TV stuff and a lot of the social media stuff is showing the capabilities of what you can kill. So they're, People have, even before they change, you know, used to, we kill a buck a day, every day. And it might, you know, from October 15th to January 31st, you kill a buck a day and a doe a day, every day. <laughs> and um, there were still big deer getting killed, you know, so. But as TV and stuff come around, even before they change the limit, people were seeing what they could kill and while you're hunting bugs with them. You know, we've only got, say, we're less than a million acres of public land, say 700 something thousand, I think. So most of our land is private and you know, a lot of hunting clubs so hunting clubs and some of your uh, some of your forestry companies started putting out rules you know to for bigger bucks and limits so a lot of your hunting clubs so you need to shoot it you know say a 16 inch spread or whatever they were putting on management strategies and then a lot of people on their own seeing what bill jordan and all that killing the way we, gonna, we can do that too so they were taking on their own to start passing deer then alabama the conservation department put the three buck limit in Changed it from you know unlimited bucks to three, and then and one of them got to have four points on one side, and that's you know I guess that's helped. I'm, I kind of worry about that a little bit because sometimes when you say that, people say, "Well, I got to kill three. That's like a it's like a challenge, you know. So yeah. But instead, before they, well, I can kill a buck anytime I want to, so they wasn't really worried about it. So I got mixed feelings on that. I think the biggest thing is helped is people are being more choosy. Choosy, you know? yeah. So, and uh, and I and I, I like it, but another thing is I don't want anybody to be restricted. You know, if they want meat or whatever, and they don't have the limited time to hunt, if, if a spike or whatever is what they need to shoot to eat, that, that's fine too. I don't, you know, that don't that don't bother me. The the doe thing to me is ways we got a lot of deer in some places, and controlling that more would might would help. Then the the bad side of that is is like when we hunt this the main public land where I killed that big deer. I don't like messing with the does early because I want them to feel safe and unpressured 
to help get the buck by me. So, so that's kind of mixed feelings. I want to try to shoot them after that if I can, or I'll just go somewhere else and shoot a doe for meat. So, if I can, so that's mixed feelings. You know, if if a perfect scenario for me was if you had the perfect plan, you had the complete control over it, was not to mess with your does until after the rut, then call out what you needed to. You know, I would I would I would think that would be a better strategy. To, to have a relaxed, real relaxed deer population and be more successful with a bigger buck, but who knows? I mean, that's just my <laughs> thought. But it, it, but I just don't want to. I don't want to shoot a doe in my main hunting area because I'm afraid it's going, to you know, bleeding blood and all that's going. Uh oh, he's here. So then everything yeah. changes. So, I'm, the, well, I'm the same way it's so funny i every year i'm like i should just shoot a doe early so i get some meat in the freezer and you know i i got that out of the way and i could focus on bucks but then i never want to because of what you just said it's like i don't want to screw anything up i don't want to I, I you know and then, then i i say i'm going to shoot one later and then when i try to shoot one later it's harder it's like for some reason it's like <laughs> why i had all these opportunities early that i passed on and now later i i'm struggling to even see a doe <laughs> But my thing is, like, I had this this one place I killed two two bucks in a row, two years in a row. A doe brought her by. I'm thinking, I wonder if I was that doe from the year before. So I'm hoping she's here next year and stuff like that. Well, last year I didn't see her. So, so I don't. So somebody might have got her. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't want to mess with her because she's she's helped me kill two good bucks. So, so that, <laughs> you know, it's corrupted my mind now. So I don't want to shoot them because that might be Susie that brought that buck by me. So. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and too, like I, I've, I've learned some of these areas that I've spent so much time in, I know these certain doe groups and when they tend to come into asterisk and when, or at least when bucks are starting to, you know, check these certain right. ones. And I'm like, I don't want to accidentally shoot her, you know, cause if that happens, then is that going to screw everything up? Or is all my historical data going to be thrown out the window for this spot? <laughs> yeah. And you know, and a lot of times them doe groups are still, you know, small groups. If you shoot the older doe, that's the one that's kind of educating, helping them get through the coyotes and that process. So, so you got to, there's a lot more thinking to it, you know, to, to that you get thinking too much. But, hey, what if I do that? You know, how it's going to screw up everything, the, their hierarchy or whatever. You know, if you shoot the grandma doe, it's learned everything for the 10 years on, on how to elude people or how to, how to train a, train a buck how to be smarter you know because i really believe you know i've watched does do some crazy things i watched a doe in one place circle a whole food plot with a fawn 10 yards inside the woods stopping every so often looking and training that fawn to do that before she got around and come out pretty close to him it was still far away i couldn't shoot her but she done circling over that whole food plot just patiently teaching that fawn you know hey that's trouble. You just got to sneak out there, you know, or just yep. sneak everything, scent check, look, you know, make sure before you go. So that, that thought process, like, man, I, you know, it's, it's cool, but you just, you just don't, you know, it's cool the things you say, and then, then you start questioning about what you're going to do, you know, because yeah. it, everything you do affects something. So, so try to make it where it's going to affect a benefit for you. So not a, not a negative down the road and trying to figure that out for, you know, plan for the future. It makes it tough sometimes. Yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. And it, it's, it is so cool to be able to see all these things and, you know, be in the woods and witness it and kind of come to your own conclusions on what they're doing and, and thinking about it. I mean, that's just, that's such a great, great part about hunting. I I love yeah. it. And every area has its own little things. My, my dad had a story. He said, I know a dog can count to three because I've seen one do it one time. 
He said he's seen a doe go behind three hunters and then come back by with a pond and stop and point them hunters out when she come by. You know, so, <laughs> so she, she knew where there was all else. She said, I know she could count three. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's that's really funny what one one other thing i wanted to ask you back when we were talking about you know the groups of people and you call them and and i'm always interested in this how do you get your bucks out of the woods typically that's always with a deer cart or dragon you know used to we drug we drag five six hours you know but deer cart i've not i've never packed one out you know i know it's getting popular and uh, i just want to get up there to the checking station because you're supposed to carry them checking station i want to get them up our hole and just see what the weight was and Mm-hmm. you know see everything so I, I just we can roll them out with a card it might take five or six hours or so but generally i can get some help so if it's too bad so that, you know and a lot of people's going toward that jet sled i've talked to a guy this year that used one out there and it, that he said you'd be surprised how, how much easier a jet sled is than dragging so what what do you mean by a jet sled just like a snow sled like a snow sled so it's just a solid like piece of plastic it's kind of bold that you put the deer in and you can drag them over rocks, logs, and all that. You ain't hurting the hide. Like you're going to mount it and just easier, you know. So he said it's more, a little bit more maneuverable than a cart with them wheels. But, you know, I haven't drive one yet, so I'd have to see it. But, I, you know, I just – but I like driving – I like gearing them out. Oh, I, that's me. You know, a lot of people – one of my things is, you, know, you don't worry about anything. you got to get them flat first. Then you – getting them out and all that comes later. You know, all that's the, the gravy part. But the hardest part is getting yourself in position to get them flat. Once you get them flat – you can get them out somehow or another, so don't worry about all that stuff. Get them flat first, and then, then anything you know, you can you can come up with other stuff. So. Yeah, it, it, it's it's funny because I so when I started hunting out west and learning, you know, packing deer out and stuff, and I was like, oh, this is great, and I started you know doing that in Pennsylvania, and but then it was like one of the biggest things for us is we get back to camp and we hang them there, and everyone comes by and looks at them and does that, and I'm like, well, I'm kind of missing out on that. You know, I, I'll, I'll never forget in 2017, I shot one of the biggest bodied bucks I'd ever shot. And, and I was by myself and I had no cell service and I'm like, I got to get him out of here. But I was like, I want to show everybody at camp. And I had my frame pack and I could have cut him up. And I was like, I spent the whole day dragging him out through these, you know, these clear cuts that had all these branches down that were tough. I'm trying to keep the hide off it. So, cause I was going to mount them and try to get it up. And, and it was just, it's just funny to hear that. But I ran into a guy and, and gun season one year way back in. And I talked to this guy for 20 minutes because he's never seen anybody else back in this spot. And it was my first time in there. And he had a, he had a sled that was rat that would roll up. It was like a snow sled, but it rolled up and he had it on the back of his pack. And he said, uh, that's how he gets the, the deer out of this place. Cause it was rugged and it was, it was back in there, but we've, we've used deer carts forever. That's kind of been my family's thing too. We've also taken logs and then you put them over your shoulder, another person behind yeah. it and tie the deer up around that. Um, that's part of the enjoyment, like dragging with somebody, you know, you drag a while, stop and talk and tell a story, you know what? You'll talk more probably than you drag. And it's, yeah. it's kind of funny was me and my brother was in, in Wyoming public land hunting and he killed a like a his first ever mule there and his only mule there, like a three buck two or something. No, no, no monster, you know, like a two year old. And we toted that thing between us off and on seven miles. You know, we stopped and talked and told we did we could have we had packs, we could have packed that thing out, but we're just so used to the Alabama thing of toting them or dragging them. But we throw that thing on our shoulders and we walk, 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 stop, talk, drink water, you know, for seven miles away from the camp. So it, but it was fun. <laughs> it's just, 
that's just part of it. It's just part of the experience. You only know, enjoyed it. So. Yeah, no, and that's always been that's always been my thing. I never think of when I go into an area, how am I going to get a deer out of here? That's always an afterthought. I don't even want to think about it. Just get it down and then worry about that. Uh, now, if you elk hunting or moose hunting or something like that, you know, that might be different. But you know, yeah, I'm like, just, I was just going to say that when I go on my moose hunt this year in Alaska, like that's a little bit different. I can't, I can't just go five miles away from camp and shoot a moose and right. expect to get them back. Yeah, that's a whole different animal right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's true. You do, you've actually, you've done, um, some Alaska hunting, haven't you? I've been to Alaska three times, two brown bear. Uh, coastal brown bear and one black bear on the same hunt, and an Arctic grizzly bear on a different hunt. So very cool hunts. I mean, Alaska. Is, if I could go there every year, that's one of the most amazing places they are. And if I was a young guy, man, I would think about moving out there somewhere for about six, seven years and try to hunt the sheep and the you know mountain goats, moose, caribou, black-tailed deer, everything they got because you can do it. You know, if you live there. And uh, they just got so many different kind of unique animals to hunt, and that's that's just it's a very unique place. I'm trying to get my wife out there just to tour it because it's it's so diverse and 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 different types of mountain escape versus the the, the tundra and and, uh, and tussock and all that stuff is just so neat. The the boreal forest down there on the coast and by the ocean. Like one place I went, we the main camp was right by the ocean in the in the uh, Prince William Sound area. And we ain't been off the. There's a 30 mile boat ride from the from Cordova, and on this like a this beach. Anyway, we got there and was getting set up. And we heard something. We're not there on that beach. And there's a humpback whale going by, blowing. You know, you're just, you know, you're <laughs> just seeing so many different things. You know, the whales, the otters, the seals, and and uh, you know, seeing wolves, coyotes. I mean, you know, mountain goats, dog, sheep, just caribou, whatever. It's just so many things you can see and just. And just other wildlife, the eagles everywhere, and just the it, it's just amazing. You can sit on a, be sitting on a beach and looking at snow capped mountains is one of the most amazing things to me. You know, yeah, that they are. And, and uh, then the then the other thing is is hunting an animal that's so big that it can take off faster than a quarter horse. You know, run forty mile an hour and and and, and can get you anyway. They already get you. And you're you're sleeping out there in a tent with them and then hunting them. That I really love stuff like that too. So. But I mean, I've enjoyed that, and I've, I've been successful in all them. Brown, I've killed two brown bears, the Arctic grizzly, and the black bear up there. And I've done some uh, Canada black bear hunts with the bow, you know, baited hunts. I've killed one with a recurve, and my wife killed a huge one with a crossbow, a 400-something pounder that just liked a little bit Ben Boone and Crockett on one of them hunts. And uh, I've also done a moose hunt in New Brunswick and killed, you know, a moose there. And that's that animal, you know, when you're looking – I was, it was a right. I could have. I carried my bow, but you couldn't. There, they had a law where you couldn't have both weapons with you. So, mm. so I had. So I made my mind up. So I left my bow at the camp and uh, carried my rifle and ended up shooting this forty-something inch spread moose. A nice moose for the area at like fifty-something yards. You know, I might have been able to hit with. Well, I probably could have hit with a bow. So anyway, that was a cool hunt. But you're looking through that scope. Looking at this moose, and it ain't no different than looking at a deer. You just see an animal in there and crosshair. You wait for the right shot, shoot. But when you get in there and walk up on that thing, and it's, you know, you, it circles like 12 yards long. <laughs> you know, 1,100, I think it was 1,100-something pounds, you know. So it just wasn't the world. But anyway, the, as lucky as the place was at, they could 
they drove a tractor for four or five miles, got back there and picked it up with a box play tractor and our bucket tractor and, and carried it back to, to camp. So it was by a fire break and uh, we could get him out that way or, or they would have cut him up, but it was, it was just luck played out that we could get him back there with a tractor. But yeah, but that, that's a cool hunt. That grunting and the uh, horn wrecking on them trees that they do is, you could feel that grunt off your chest like a subwoofer bass or something. Just, oh, you know, just, oh, yeah. just getting and it's like, what in the world is that? Hey, that's a bull moose coming. I said, hey, I, you know, <laughs> I heard about the grunt, but feeling that was like, it was crazy. And then he'd stop and in the woods, you hear him just tearing a tree up and it sounded like somebody's in there, a boat paddle, just wearing a tree out. And then he comes out, you know, that's actually an exciting hunt. And them things are good to eat. You know, that's, that's some fine eating, so. Yeah. Moose is my favorite, favorite meat I've had so far out of the wild game. That's, that's amazing how sweet that meat was to me. The the sweeter flavor. We eat on that thing for two, two and a half years. I think we catch, we carried a chest top freezer up around the trailer, 30 something hour drive and had that thing full and give away a couple hundred pounds of meat or whatever it was to the, to the guy and the family. And I brought the hide and stuff, mounted him and all that. But that, we we got home and vacuum sealed every bit of it. Got home, took a week to vacuum seal. I love. They had it froze for us. But we went ahead and vacuum sealed it. But it was some fine eating for two years. You know, just oh yeah. I mean, just sharing, having cookouts and carrying some to work and cooking it. You know, it's just that that hunt is worth just the meat. You know, let alone the, the antler process. But, Oh man, I yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to. It. I really hope that uh, I'm able to have a story like that where we you know we come back with one. There's two of us with tags. My buddy's going with a bow, and I'm taking a gun, and uh, we're gonna gonna try it and see it, see how it goes. Getting dropped off at a lake and uh, just setting up camp for ten days. That's awesome. You go? Are we gonna have bear tag too, or just just a moose tag? Um, not a, not a brown bear. I think I'm going to get a black bear tag yeah. while I'm there too. Cause it's unguided. So I can't, right, I can't yeah. shoot a grizzly or anything up there, but. Right. Yeah. That's what I meant. You know, a black bear, you can hunt as a non-resident and moose, of course, and a caribou, I think black tail. Yeah. But the yep. bears, the bears and the sheep and goats, you got to have a guide. So, but, yeah, yeah. that's, no. that's going to, you're going to enjoy that hunt. And it, but you've been there last before, right? Yeah, I went caribou hunted hunted there in 2020, and that's where I decided I was like, if I can find a way to get back, and that's so I was I actually have a, a sick of blacktail uh, hunt planned this year too, and wow. early early no late October early November, which is hard for me to do that with deer season, but I was like, I really wanna I really <laughs> yeah. wanna do this, and I, I had booked it a couple years ago. And then the moose hunt came up as an opportunity. A friend of mine asked me to join on. He got in with this transporter and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to swing two Alaska hunts in a year. But at the same time, I was mm-hmm. like, I may, you know, it, I may not get this opportunity, so I'll figure it out and I need to, yeah. need to, to, to go for it. So, yeah, that's another one. i you get the opportunity on something like that, do it. Worry about the rest later because man, it, that's an amazing place. Or on the caribou's you go up in the, Right, Brooks Range or above Brooks Range or yeah. where? Yeah, the north slope of the Brooks Range. Wow. So I was on the close to the north slope. We was up on the upper Shinjack. It's like a, the, I was telling people like that on that hunt, if something happened to you, it was about six hours by plane to get you back to a hospital somewhere. So it was you out there and dang nowhere. I mean, it, but it's amazing country, beautiful. Just you don't ain't got to worry about no vehicles, no phone stuff. I mean, might see a plane come by every now and then, but it's but it's some somebody going up to the north slope to that 
to the oil field or something. So, but other than that, man, it was amazing. You know, I, I love that stuff. Yeah. Oh man. I, I remember, I'll never forget looking through a spotting scope and it, cause it's wide open, but it was kind of the mountains there, but it was still wide open. And we saw some grizzlies up on the one hill. It, I mean, he was probably four miles away when we looked on the maps, but you know, he didn't look that far away when you're looking through the spotting scope. And then there was one that was, that went into these alders. And at the time, you know, I hadn't really seen these alders before. And from a distance, they look like they're, you know, they look like they're a foot tall. And, and I thought maybe all oh, the grizzly went over the saddle and then some caribou showed up and they bedded on this, this like cliff face. And, uh, me and my buddy were like, all right, let's go up after these caribou. That grizzly has gone. You know, we, we start going up there and we realize these alders are eight or 10 foot tall. And it's like, he could be in here. I was like, how about, how about you go first, buddy? You know? <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah that's that's one thing about you know i've been to wyoming several times you know wyoming's big you know you look at something you know that's pretty far over alaska is bigger yeah. you know like the guy said oh, get that pack go down and go get some water so i looked you know the, there's a river down there and so i looked at that river i'll be down there so i took off without my rifle and walked down there in that river about 30 minutes later i stopped looked back up there toward the tent and i still got another 15 20 minutes to get down that dang river I'm thinking, why in the world I didn't bring my gun? You know, like you say, them trees down there look like bushes. When you get down there, they're that gum trees, you know, tall, you know, yeah. 20 foot tall. And you're thinking, there's a bear could be down here and I'm a goner. But anyway, I didn't, nothing happened bad. The guy had a little talk with me when I got back because, you know, Alabama boy, I wasn't really aware of everything. You know, that's my first time to last year. So after that, I kept that rifle on me. But, but yeah. it, it's crazy how big it is compared to other places that are big, you know, so it's just that much bigger. So. Yeah, no, it 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 uh it definitely is. You think you'll get back up there again for another hunt? You're gonna try to, to go up there again? I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try my best. I picked up a, a three seventy five H and H Magnum this past year. Because every time I went up on them brown bear hunts, I don't have a rifle big enough. But the guy on that Arctic the grizzly hunt, he let me carry my thirty out six. I'm a big thirty out six fan, so that's one reason I went with him. Was to do that that thirty out six. But them brown bear, them guys on brown bear hunt, they they would let me, I borrowed a 338 that they had, but they prefer 416, you know, Remington Mags, you know, big gun. And uh, and I on that second brown bear hunt, I found out why, because them things are tough, you know. The first one I killed, I dropped him. He was a, he was a, he was a good size brown bear. He was a nine-foot, 11-inch square. Just, you know, if I hadn't shot him in the head, he'd been in Boone and Crockett. He was walking right straight toward us, and I was trying to shoot him above the head on that hunt because I was getting a cramp, and then, he was just still steadily coming straight toward us, and uh, like at 100 and something yards. Guys said, if you can shoot him in that hump, shoot him. So, anyway, I squeezed off. I hit him right right above the eyes, right between the head, and it dropped him like a sack of potatoes. So, <laughs> but that second one, we couldn't get no closer than like 200 something yards from him. And uh, the guy asked me as I was comfortable, and I said, I, I, I said, how, how flat will he get rifle shooting? He said, just hold a little high. So, I took it when a whole little high was like over its back a little bit. So the first shot I squeezed off went over him, and he didn't know what happened. He kind of looked around, froze. So I dropped it down on that second shot, and you heard, you could hear that bullet hit. Well, when that bullet hit, that song gun jumped like a cat, turned around, and started tearing up bushes and stuff, and was looking around trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, I commenced shooting again, and every bullet would hit. He would jump around, tear up stuff, and, and would growl so loud that you could hear it echoing down the thing valley forever and i'm thinking you know that's all gun. anyway i reloaded like 
I'll say three times. And uh, finally got this bear took care of. But if, if that would have happened to him being close and he would have seen us, he probably would have come over and done some damage. I don't know. I mean, them things are a lot tougher than you think. And you hear all the stories, and, and they, they, they said they got proof. You can shoot a bear in the heart, especially a brown bear, and their heartbeats are so low per minute that they can go a couple hundred yards without a heart and tear something up. So that's why they tell you you keep shooting through the shoulder and do as much damage as you can because because you if you don't drop him right there and he goes in them alders, somebody's got to track him. You know, and them things can do, like I say, they can do some damage. If, if you don't drop him out there in that thing, tundra or whatever, and they get some of them alders, you know, by your ethics, somebody got to go in there and try to do your best to find that thing, you know. Because yeah. if you find blood and you know, you don't find it, you know, your hunt's over with. So, and they have so many stories about one story was a guy shot one and it went up in his alders. They shot it two or three times. It went up in some alders up his hill. They give it a little time. And they start up and they start tracking, tracking blood. Then they said, I think we're just going to wait till in the morning. So, all right. so they went back and they picked up another guy. Well, they start going up there following that blood. This one guy, that, the new guy that was with them said, hey, there's a bear laying right there. Well, over there about 25 yards off the side of that trail, facing back that back trail with that bear laying there dead. He had run up that thing hill and turned around and come back. Jay hooked back. I laid down there watching the back truck. They went on my first track and somebody might have got killed. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of thought process you got to think about when you're doing them big game hunts. But, there, but there's, but it's it's fun. It's cool. I mean, it's exciting. And it's, you know, I, my whitetail hunting is my thing. That's what I really love, really enjoy the public land stuff. I'm starting to spread out where I want to go to more states. But brown bear hunting and grizzly hunting, is one of the it's the upper food chain stuff. It's just you testing your abilities, your your uh, grit, and your calmness to stay calm to make them shots. It's it's. I mean, I really love doing them hunts, and it's. I, I recommend if anybody can do it to do it or, or go to Alaska somehow or another because it's. Then my uh, you know up is a way you shooting a brown bear for because most people don't eat them. The they say the meat's like eating a rotten fish. You know they just they're just nasty, but. It's like shooting coyotes or whatever there, because if you don't control them upper predators, they'll eat so many moose calves or so many moose or so many baby bears or so many caribou calves or caribou, you know, you'll have a, you'll have a population switch, you know, one side will get overpopulated. Controlling them numbers helps, you know, helps people with the, with the caribou herds and the moose herds. So you got to be a natural balance. So, you know, that's why I like enjoying them, you know, in them hunts where I don't bring that meat back because, you're actually helping other animals, you know, that's part of the predator control. And, you know, some people don't see that, but, you know, until you do that, you know, you'll learn that. Yeah. Now, now I'm going to remember this story when I'm sleeping in my tent the first night there. When I'm in them tents, we, you know, we sleep in them tents. And I told a guy, you know, I told every one of them guys, that, listen, I go sleep. That's the only way I'm waking up is when that brown bear puts them feet on my chest, you know, so. And uh, so we sleep with a rifle and, and a pistol. And I know y'all going to carry pistols, right? Yeah. Keep them things on you. And I can tell you another story that might make might freak you out more than that is how, how good they can smell. As if, if a bear wants to get you in a tent, he's going to circle that tent and he can smell your breath and figure out where your head is and will come through that tent where your head's at. So it's just... <laughs> 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 
So, so remember uh, that. <laughs> I should not have. I should not have brought this topic up with you, Michael. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I want you to be aware of all these things. That's how. I mean, that's how good they can smell. We watched them things hunt moose. This last place I camped at was camped on a little hill, and this brown bear were circling. They would come out way down a meadow and get downwind. Well, they could zigzag through that them like cutover stuff, big old uh, marshy, uh, just willow flats, whatever. And you see them right up every now and then. But they would just circle back and forth, smelling, trying to pick up a moose smell or caribou smell or whatever. And it was so neat how they knew how to circle away to get downwind and stuff. So they're sharp and real smart and uh, pretty dangerous, you know. So yeah. We had, we had one come into camp the last time about an eight foot brown bear come walking right to us. We're standing, we're standing out there on top of rocks with rifles, and uh, it kept coming, kept coming. We've done the hay bear and all that stuff. It kept coming. Guys said, uh, "Step in the tent, get get his pistol." So I stepped in there and hit a forty-five and got it because most of your magnum rifles only hold three shells. So, so if you don't want to do a warning shot with one of them shells. Because, like I say, if they come after you at 40 mile an hour, you know, you've only got one or two shells. And most of the time, them guys tell you to save one just in case you want to take about taking care of yourself before the bear takes care of you. you know? so, <laughs> so, but anyway, he got the pistol and shot from that bear at 40 yards from the tent. And uh, that bear just stopped, like, uh, what do y'all want? And just reared up, smelling, looking at us, sat down, and then just walked and walked. At an angle by us without running anything, just walk by us, look at us every night, and then walk on by and never run or anything. Like, I don't care about y'all, but you know, Holy cow. if they did care about it, he's like, I'll come over and wear you up if I wanted to, so you ain't gonna tell me what to do. So, anyway, so there's just <laughs> something to think about, and you, you kind of, you know, as bad as them stories sound, but you kind of need to be aware yeah. of, the, of the stuff because anything could happen. So, yeah, I sleep like a rock. I sleep like a rock too. So yeah, like you said about the bear being on your chest, I won't even know that he's attacking because I'll be done by that point. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know. Some of them carry them electric fences, but most of them guys, I don't think they're more trouble than they were. So, but, yeah. But, no, I'm yeah, just going to. We just slept in the tent. We, you get up and be a big old track out there right in front of the tent. You know, so they've come by during during the night. Which in the spring, uh, on them spring hunts, the farther up, you know, like when I went on an Arctic hunt, it stayed daylight the whole time. You know, it never would get dark. You know, yeah. kind of just, but that, it was daylight the whole time. So you just, you just slept however you wanted to sleep. So. Yeah. That's how when we did that caribou hunt, it was like that too. It was light, you know, it was in the uh, uh, middle to the end of August and it was like light most of the night. And uh, I don't remember ever seeing darkness the whole time I was there because I was sleeping during that time. You know, even 11 o'clock at night, it was still light out. But I remember the one morning we woke up and, I'm walking out there. I said to my buddy, I said, is that fresh, you know, bear <laughs> shit laying there? And he's like, he's like, yep. I was like, okay, it's right here, you know, in between the tents and, uh, just what it was, you know? So when we, when we got our caribou meat, we put it, we put it downwind like 40 yards and then we put a tarp on it, but left the one side open. So it would flap in the wind and was told that that would kind of, you know, deter them from, from coming into it. I don't know, but that was, uh, I don't know. I slept, I slept as good as I could have at, at that point. So <laughs> I just got, I just, I mean, 
you just hope this is what I always tell everybody is when you go on them hunt, you hope that you've lived a good enough life that you know something happens, you know, you can't really worry about it. Because if you worry about that stuff, you're worrying about the wrong thing, it's hard to enjoy it. So don't worry about it, you know, and, and enjoy it and be prepared. You know, keep yourself prepared and the guys, you know, the guys are gonna be prepared, they're aware of a lot of stuff that you ain't. So just just don't, you know, but since y'all gonna be by yourself doing the <laughs> DIY, y'all <laughs> take care of each other. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll have my, my three hundred wind mag and then I have a ten millimeter uh pistol as well. So I'll have I'll have everything there and I won't take it off. I got a chest holster now because I used to always just carry my pistol in my backpack, but you realize you have your backpack off in the times when things you know, it's just I was like, I want something that's gonna be on me at all times. Yeah, you keep that on your chest. That guy that that had the 45 them other guys carried in big old smith Wesson 500 this guy that I went last time he had a, a 45 and i asked him i said well why are you carrying a 45 and he said it ain't gonna matter anyway he said all i'm doing is gonna wait till it gets up on top of him and i'm gonna stick it in his mouth pull the trigger so, all right so he, was kind of, he was kind of a rough burly guy and he had a he had a knife right there and then that, that 45 and he said i'm gonna be close quarters and i'm doing it he said i'll wait till he gets up on me and i'm gonna stick it in his mouth start pulling that trigger <laughs> all right <laughs> long as you let him get to you before he gets to me <laughs> oh. well uh, this has been a, a fun conversation michael i appreciate you uh taking the time and and talking to me and you know i i, I thought you know i knew we were going to talk about whitetails and and didn't expect to get into alaska stuff but man that's fun fun hearing those stories and talking about it because it's it's uh it's fun to get out of your comfort zone sometimes in your home state and just go and and see different stuff uh yeah you learn that's what i tell everybody if you can if you can afford it you know i'm not listen i'm that's another thing i'm just a plant worker i've been working at a chemical plant 26 years you know i've not really my wife is not a keep up with the jones type of person we don't spend much crazy money so i've saved up enough money to go on some of these trips because they're right bucket list things just things that i want to do and I highly recommend if anybody that's listening or watching this, do something outside the box that you really want to do and, and try it and enjoy it because, you know, you've only got a certain amount of time you're going to be here. You know, make the best of it. Do it and get your family involved in it or your wife, whoever. And Because, it, you know, we're getting enough pressure from the anti and stuff like that, some of the stuff we've already lost. So uh, try to find something like that and enjoy it. Don't, you know, some people want to do it all DIY, but, but some of that stuff you can't. And then, but the, the adventure you'll have, it'd be well worth what money you can save up to do it because it's, there's, there's, there's no other place in the world that we can, that we, you can do stuff like this. You know, we're, we're blessed to be where we're at. So enjoy that and then do all you can, you know, do all the, you know, like I say, the public land whitefield, but I enjoy That's my biggest thing, but I love doing something outside the box. Carry my wife with me and her whatever, you know, drove to Wyoming on public land, just anything like that. So try it and, you know, enjoy it and and don't let anybody influence you a way you don't want to be influenced. So all the other negativity or whatever we got in some of this stuff, just, you know, do what you want to do. Be comfortable with it. Don't let anybody else bother you about it. Yeah. No, I I love it. I think that's a perfect message to to leave everyone with, and that's what I've tried to keep in the forefront of my mind. Is I've tried to trying to do as much as I can and see some amazing places because it's it's changed my life. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I really believe it. Yeah, it's good talking to you, man. I really appreciate it, and I'm uh, I'm gonna get back with you later. I, I tried to call uh, uh, 
bill the other day and i didn't get a hold of him yet but i'm going to talk to some more about that stuff we talked about the other day so but yeah i mean yeah. i'm real interested in that stuff y'all got i'm real inter- interested in that so yeah no awesome and what where can people find your book at where can they find that if they want to check it out uh you can find it on amazon it's uh on amazon to look up michael perry uh secrets deer hunting secrets public land bucks uh or was it secrets to taking mature bucks on public land so Look it up on Amazon. You can find it. If not, you can message me. I'll send you one. I've sent quite a few people if they want them signed. So that's the biggest place. There's a couple of stores in Alabama has them, but the biggest thing is just Amazon. Okay. And then uh, then you also have um, Instagram and a YouTube channel as well. Where can people find that stuff? Yeah, Instagram is Michael Perry 9. Then the YouTube is 18 Outdoors. Uh, I just started my own channel this year that me and my wife are doing, and I'm going to get my brother involved in with it a little bit more. So. But it's basically us doing different things outdoors and, main, you know, the hunting and some tips and tactics and maybe some gear reviews and stuff we use. But just trying to be us. It's not going to be anything real fancy. You know, I can't really afford to buy all that fancy camera stuff. And I don't uh, – and trying to film a hunt is, is, you know, killing a big deer is one thing. Trying to film yourself killing a big deer is another thing. So that's not going to be our priority. I'm going to try to get people involved in it as much as I can, showing how it happens or whatever – if it happens again, but, you know, just, but the other part, you know, it's just going to be us, you know, it's going to be, you know, the real deal. That's Southern folks. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll be uh, talking again here soon. Yes, sir, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.